welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Hello and welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. This is episode 139 and my guest this week is Matty Kane, who is the CEO and founder of the First Person Project CIC. And the First Person Project is a not-for-profit social enterprise who are on a social mission to promote empowerment in communities across Liverpool City region, improving mental health through socially progressive action. And Matty himself has 17 years professional experience working in the field of mental health. With more than a decade of Matty's career was spent working as a registered mental health nurse. He had loads of different roles under that umbrella and his work took him up and down the country. And during this time, Matty became frustrated with the restrictions and barriers in the healthcare system that get in the way of people getting help. Towards the end of his career, he had to take some time away from work after he started to experience depression and psychotic episodes which were triggered after his mum passed away. And these mixed with the grief would eventually result in multiple suicide attempts. But a part of his recovery, Matty started the first person project. And he wasn't quite sure what that was at that time, but he knew he wanted to do things differently. He knew he wanted to take the best things from the traditional healthcare system and combine them with a more fluid and progressive approach, one that was very person-centred and aimed really at the, the people in the heart of his local community. Initially knocking on doors in his local area, offering to support anyone in the community who was struggling with their mental health and unable to access the right services, his work swiftly grew and he now has a team around him and several support hubs in the Liverpool city region. Matty and his team are doing all sorts of different things under the First Person Project. I'm not going to list them all here because we get into all that in the episode. But it's an incredible story, both of Matty becoming ill and getting better and then going door to door and just offering help to people in his role as a mental health nurse and how that grew into the first person project. And it's really inspiring stuff. You know, I've spoke to a lot of people. I am aware of a lot of people and I don't really know of anyone who's doing things in the way that Matty and his team are doing things. And as well as finding it inspiring, I found it really exciting, to be honest, you know. But I loved recording this episode. Matty's a top guy. I liked him a lot. He's been on my radar for a little while. We have met very briefly a couple of years ago. So that was wonderful to be able to connect and just hear about what he's up to, hear about where it came from. And he really knows this stuff inside out. He really cares. And he's got some wonderful ideas and a very different way of coming at some of these problems. But all of it made so much sense to me. And it was beautiful, really, to to hear all about it and to explore it a little bit with him. And I say it in this episode, and I've said it on numerous occasions, that I feel like Merseyside is kind of leading the way when it comes to mental health support. And it's so easy to get like bogged down and frustrated with the traditional healthcare system. You know, that we all know that there's no money. We all know that the government doesn't seem to care. We all know that waiting lists are getting longer and longer and people just aren't getting the help that they need and that they deserve. And while that is frustrating and it's upsetting, I'm not sure it does us any good to just be talking about it all the time. I don't think that changes anything. And for people who are in a position where they really need help and they're not getting help, well, it's just scary. You know, if you've got someone who's really unwell and every time they log on to social media, they're seeing people talking about waiting lists and not getting help. Well, that's not going to offer them any hope. That's only going to offer them fear. Obviously, we shouldn't ignore the fact that these things happen, but it's why I think it's so important to talk about the people that are out there doing things, because it's so easy to think that we've all got to sit on these waiting lists and there's no one out there helping. 
that it's hopeless. But there's people like Matty and the First Person Project that are out there in their local community, day in, day out, helping people and saving people's lives, making people's lives better. And there are a lot of organisations based in Merseyside. And I always say that they're leading the way. That's no disrespect to any other areas. I don't know about other areas, but I do know about my local area. And there's so many organisations. And their biggest challenge is letting people know that they're out there. I was poorly for a long time. And I'm surrounded by these organisations. And I didn't know about any of them. And I could have done with them. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so keen and so passionate to sort of shine a light on them, I suppose. I'm working my way around them all. There's an incredible amount of organisations. They all have very different approaches. They're doing things very differently, offering different things. And I think that variation and collaboration are two of the most important things when it comes to mental health support. And this area has that. So I can recommend a few other episodes where I've spoke to people in my local area. There's episode 60 with Lee Pennington from The Open Door. There's episode 120-something-ish with Debbie Rogers from Sean's Place. And if you go back a little further to the early hundreds, I also spoke to Angela Samata, who's a suicide prevention advocate, who's been doing wonderful things all over the country for a long, long time now. Go and check those episodes out. Everything you need to know about Matty and the First Person Project, all the links are in the episode notes, the website, the socials, all the different things that they do. And if you want to connect with me in any way at all, head to the website. Again, all my information is in the episode notes. And as always, if you've got two minutes to leave me a quick review for this episode or any of the other episodes of the Proper Mental Podcast, that would be much appreciated. Thank you in advance. I think I've waffled on for long enough. This is episode 139 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Matty Kane from the First Person Project. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Matty Kane. How are you, mate? I'm fine, mate. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Oh, mate, thank you for uh, for joining me today. Or am I joining you, I suppose, is the, uh, is the <laughs> You're way. You're always welcome, anyway. <laughs> oh, mate, I appreciate it. Um, I was thinking on the way over here, I don't know Liverpool outside of the city centre at all. Yeah. And I'm not even sure where I am. Where are we today, mate? We're in uh, the glorious Liverpool 8. We're in Toxted. So uh, at one of our community hubs, uh, this one is in the south end in uh, on, on a place called Lords Lane. Right. Um, it is, I suppose it's the main, the main road, really. The main street, the high street around, around here. It's very busy. Um, it's very exciting. It's full of the best people in the world. Yeah. Is it quite typical for like Liverpool City region like the areas outside of the city centre, is there like a similar vibe throughout Liverpool? Um, well, I'm I'm from so I'm, I'm I'm from a place called Everton, which is which is just outside the city centre, but kind of a little bit a little bit further north in the city. And yeah, it's like obviously it's a community all of its all of its own, but it's kind of Liverpool eight is is different again. It's it's um, like I say, if, if you're excited by diversity, if you're excited by different sights, smells, sounds it's the place for you it's amazing that's what attracted us to come around here uh, about about kind of 14 months ago and we've been uh, and, you know we're blessed here. we've been, been welcome with open arms some of the best people i've ever met oh mate yeah that's uh that's lovely i was going to ask about that actually that i was gonna assume that there was quite specific reasons why you chose like this area and this spot and and stuff like that yeah so um basically what what it was was we're, we're a social enterprise so 
we although we do have a, a social aim a charitable aim we you know we, we operate like a, like a typical business in the sense that we we pride ourselves on trying to trying to generate revenue in order to then reinvest that back in communities and one of the ways in which we do that is providing a range of different services community building being one so we were commissioned by a large social housing provider actually it's the charitable arm of that social housing provider called Taurus Foundation um, they have a large stock of houses in the Liverpool Lake area and they wanted to invest in that area through community building, through um, building health initiatives, basically from the inside out. Um, one of the one of the kind of conditions was that you had to know the area, that you had to be local to the area. And um, we decided, well, actually, if we were going to if we were going to be around Toxted or Liverpool 8, then we wanted to be in a place where you know, basically wanted to be in a place and make a place where people wanted to come surrounded by people who they wanted to be surrounded by. And what better place than the Lodge Lane? Amazing. And right on the high street as well. Right on the high street. And I think that's yeah. like when mental health is so often in doctor's offices, yeah. therapy rooms in people's gardens, tucked away. Yeah. Like, it's, I think it's a really lovely and important statement to have it right in between like yeah. corner shops and banks and whatever else is on this on this road. Yeah. So we, we call ourselves the, the People's Mental Health Service and we, we call ourselves that because although the Roots of First Person Project, you know, I, I, I founded First Person Project a few years ago and I do have a professional background. However, um, everybody else involved with First Person Project doesn't. And that's, that's deliberate. What we all have in common though is... Uh, we've all grew up in similar areas to where we where we've got bases like Toxted and you know inner city areas, um, what the politicians might call deprived areas, but I don't call them that. Um, and we've all had personal experience of, of poor mental health, so I think that matters far more than any any professional badge, any certificate that you can that you can collect really. And our service, top to bottom, is completely driven by the people who access it. So when we receive a referral and we receive referrals in every 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 type of referral possible whether that's a people can walk in off the street hence the placements on the high street or through professionals or whatever we actually get dms we get all sorts of stuff um and our, our geographical placement really was was deliberate it was kind of saying you all are welcome you don't need to have a mental health a problem to access our service if you've got a diagnosis cool you don't need one uh, you know and because of that you know we've got a service which doesn't have waiting lists never had a waiting list it doesn't have any, there's no cost uh, at the point of delivery to to the public um, and the services that you can access are from as uh, low level as kind of that peer support that peer uh, mentorship that you can get from each other right up to professional services like you know, you can get professional advocacy, counselling, specialist coaching, specialist mentorship, and, and kind of everything in between, really. Oh, mate. Yeah, it's awesome. How do you, I suppose I've got a bit ahead of myself here, really. It's okay. But how do we, um, how do you sum up what you do here at First Person? What's your kind of, your soundbite for it? Well, we, our, our whole, our whole thing really is we're trying to use community building as, and, and, and I'm building that kind of social community togetherness as a way of improving mental health the knock-on effect of that obviously improved mental health will reduce mental illness which will then reduce things like suicides and all of the all of the the, the things that we you know the, the the negative consequences of of poor mental health but we don't do it like i mentioned before um a typical mainstream approach would be 
that you come into a service and there's this, this kind of power imbalance where you have a professional or a kind of expert and they tell you what's going on with you and then they, they kind of give you an intervention to fix it. We don't do that at all, really. Um, we we believe and we promote the idea that the people that come in through our doors are already aware of what they need to help themselves. We just have a conversation with them in a really supportive, structured, safe way to help them to find that out. And um, the idea is that we improve social wealth. That social wealth then has a positive impact on all of these things that, that can it, it can improve your mental health, but can actually cause poor mental health, like joblessness, a lack of training, lack of opportunity, antisocial behaviour, crime, um, so on and so forth literally the evidence the research uh, and the evidence base literally backs up what we're trying to do it's just hard to do because of course when you're trying to uh, fund something like this um it's really hard to say oh everybody's welcome because of course with pots of money they're always looking for somebody to maybe solve a problem but what we're saying is why are we why are we looking at communities like the problems why don't we look at them for all the richness and all of the all of the, the promise that they have in potential rather than the problems that we think they have. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose kind of like exploring why people might be struggling for one reason or another rather than just saying, right, you're struggling, do this, go away and do it. Yeah. But like you say, there's a lot of factors that um, that lead into why people find themselves, you know, not feeling good mentally, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's tons. I mean, it's, it's endless and, it, and it's unique to, to each individual. So... I think I've spoken about this 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 quite a lot recently, but a lot of a lot of therapies, a lot of a lot of holistic practices talk about this idea of self actualization as the end goal, and, and and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. I understand why that's used as like this kind of guiding light, but actually, if if everyone in society becomes self actualized, you have you have a society full of self actualized individuals. Whereas what we say is, cool, let's work on you becoming the best version of you let's work on understanding you but actually then how are you going to help other people do the same so there's that communal part and what we're trying to do essentially it's a little bit it's a little bit anti-business in the sense that we're always trying to deal ourselves out of the game um because you know i think if, if first person project ceases to exist tomorrow i'm very proud of the fact that there's a lot of initiatives that have started in these four walls that would be able to continue um and, and I take no credit for it. The people who take credit for it are literally the people who come along who were referred in or referred themselves in like like they would in any other service. You know, writing clubs, men's clubs, women's clubs, holistic practices, meditation, all of these were all started by people who accessed the service and would typically receive a service which involved an expert giving them some sort of intervention. Well, they are not only the solution for themselves, but they're the solution for everybody that comes along too. Increase social wealth. That's, that's our thing. Yeah, yeah. That's such a wonderful way to look at it. I'm sort of I'm quite interested to sort of um get into a little bit how you started going down that route. But I think it'd probably be useful to just rewind it even further because you mentioned before, Matty, that you kind of like grew up, you know, local, you know, reasonably local to where we are. When you were coming up, what did you know anything about mental health? Was it around you? Did you like how, what was your understanding of it as like before you know before nursing before work just as a like a, a kid kicking football yeah. around the streets or whatever? Well, when you 
obviously now I've got the benefit of looking back through, you know, kind of professionalised and kind of experienced eyes. But when you're growing up in a place like like Liverpool Six, where I grew up, you, you are surrounded by, you know, not the kind of the the well the well worn staff that we had is one in four people have a mental health problem at any any point in the UK each year. Um, well, the the risk factors for developing poor mental health have increased. When you when you when you're from a place like where I'm from or like where we are now, because of lack of opportunity and all the things that I mentioned before, so without doubt I was surrounded by it. Did I did was I consciously aware of the fact that that person's got a mental health problem or whatever? No, of course not, because m- more often than not it was kind of that that was our normal. Um, when I use some of when I, when I've been through mental health services personally. And obviously, I've been through mental health services in professional capacity as well. I've used some of the um, the psychometric testing, the the different kind of assessment tools on myself, and and you know that's how we do it when we learn as well. We kind of use them on each other, and and I always score highly on pretty much everything, particularly around things like um, measures of adverse childhood experiences and things like that. Now, I'm not unique in that. Most of the kids from where I'm from did seen things experienced things done things that we we probably wouldn't expose our kids i mean i'm i'm, I'm due to be a dad soon see so i i'm thinking about it from this point of view you know would i expose my my child to some of the things i was exposed to no is the answer and then of course there's there's my mum or well, my late mum she um she she had mental health problems all her life really she was on mental health medication um a cocktail of mental health medication all all my life and, and and even before my time so i've kind of since found out through speaking to siblings and my dad and things and i think back to when i was growing up and my mom tried the best you know she was she was amazing um cut a few corners here and there you know as you have to wasn't always legal um and basically like when i think back to to my experience a lot of the time she would be out she would do her things she would go to work she'd come home and she would just be on the couch and I didn't realise what it was. And the knock-on effect was, well, we didn't go to school or, you know, we didn't always do things that maybe other kids did and whatever. And no criticism at all. My mum was the best mum in the world. But she she, she obviously wasn't white at that point. Um, yeah, there's lots of things. I can remember being off school once for about four months for no reason at all. And didn't we didn't get a knock on the door from, like, social services or the school board or whatever. And I found it, I found it odd. But what it convinced me um, in later years when I thought back was services, although they do have the place, they aren't the be all and end all. We, 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 there's other things that we can do as, as citizens, as communities, before we even need to even ask services to, to get involved. Yeah. It's, I always think it's fascinating, really, like when you kind of, um, you know, whether it's the work you get into or something you've been through or so like from my own perspective i suppose i'm talking through the work i do around this podcast and through my own experiences with mental health now i look at everything through the lens of mental health whereas before i was poorly i didn't look at anything and you can like look back at different aspects of your life even like um like i grew up in a town called Lowestoft, and even like what we'd have thought of as like um local characters you know, like people, there's always someone that everybody knows and they're just kind of like wandering around doing their thing and they're just almost like a, kind of like a local celebrity almost. And then now you look back and go, oh yeah, that person was seriously ill and probably shouldn't have been like just wandering around the town centre doing whatever they were doing. And you, you notice more and more when you start to use that lens of mental health. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think, I think another way though of, of, of viewing it is that 
you know, these people were, a lot of them were, you know, touched by something like, say, mental ill health or some sort of vulnerability or whatever. But actually, I mean, I go back to the estate where I'm from all the time. My dad still lives there. My sister still lives there. And my nephew still lives there. Lots of mates. And I see the same characters from when I was growing up. And, and they're all right. You know, what I mean by that is without this professional intervention, without being sectioned, without being uh, written off by, by a professional service or labelled by a professional service, 30 years have passed and could they have had a better life? Well, I don't know. Maybe we need to ask them. But they're doing, they're doing all right. So we don't always have to rush in head first and kind of go, you know, um, here's a nice label for you or here's a professional intervention for you because these guys, they're just kind of doing them. They're just doing their normal. Although, like you say, you know, rightly, it, they probably are, are vulnerable at times and, and things like that, but, but they're doing okay. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I suppose like whether someone has got a good life is relative to them, right? So yeah. it's not for us to say you could have a better life. And then, yeah, going down a route of, um, you know, medication and hospitals, how is that a better life to just being able to get on with doing whatever it is that you you yeah. want to do? Yeah. The evidence tells us it's not. Actually, yeah. You know, which is, <laughs> you know, which is another, another Pandora's box, isn't it? Mate, that's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So what was your, um, how did you get into nursing then, mate? Was that, a, you know, how was that a, an obvious choice for you or something that kind of came on you? Fell. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, basically, uh, a lot of a lot of the stories I've got in, you know, my mum features heavily in them, you know. Um, so basically, you know, I didn't do well in school. I didn't. Um, I didn't. I think. I, I think a lot of it was was a bit of a misspent, you know, kind of a, a youth not really valuing what school was about, not really getting encouraged really and i don't mean that as a, as, a, as, a, as a criticism i think i think a lot of the kids from where i was it was just one of them it's how it is it's how it right? is yeah. yeah you know and um basically you know left school didn't do as, as well as as maybe i could have from a potential point of view didn't really believe in any of that academic stuff didn't believe that i had any of that capability was never encouraged to do that um was doing a bit of football coaching you know helping the kids on the estate helping the kids local and i was a, I trained as a carpenter first um, right. I was a really, really crap carpenter, but I trained as one anyway. <laughs> um, uh, of course, finished the apprenticeship, got laid off, and then I was at a crossroads. Mum and dad didn't really have the, the money to, to keep supporting me, so it was a case of you have to find a job. Um, and back then, the Liverpool Echo had a jobs page, and in it it said, and I can't believe that I actually said this in it, but it was like, support work needed for two schizophrenic gentlemen in Bellevale. I thought, at the time, I mean, it sounded all right, but now I think back, I think that's a bit, over the top and a bit, you know. But <laughs> yeah. my mum said, you know, you work, you've done the football coaching, you've done it in places like Kensington and, uh, you know, Brecht Road and places like that where it's not always the easiest. And I was a young lad and all that, but I'd managed it and I'd spoke to parents of kids who were vulnerable at times and whatever. So I, I had them kind of people skills. And it was a job and it was an easy job to get. Went, had an interview, got it. Um, Fortunately, you know, realised after about three or four months that a lot of the skills I needed to be able to to be able to do well in a job like that, I had because of because of kind of personal values and and and, and where I've been brought up and how I've been brought up and um, you know, someone gave me a chance in in a leadership capacity and then I started believing actually on a couple of NDQs and things started thinking actually this this. Um, academic stuff you know maybe maybe it is it is for me um 
again, my ma said about an access course in, in, in Edgehill Uni and, and, and the rest of history. I started uni when I was 19, I'm 36 now, I've never left, I'm still there now. Um, currently doing a doctorate now, which is crazy, you know, <laughs> right. it's crazy, mate. Um, but here we are. So that's, that's it, fell, completely fell. Um, <laughs> oh, mate, yeah, just one of them and then kind of like dictated so much yeah. of uh, of what was to I, come. I thought it was a glamorous job. So we used to get visited by community psychiatric nurses when I was working in the supported living place. And there was one in particular and, and I thought she was, you know, I thought she, she proper knew onions and all that. I thought she was dead glamorous. She, she knew her stuff. Anyway, um, I thought, well, I, I, out of all of the health and social care type of jobs I can do, when I done this access course, you got the choice at the end what to go and interview for, and I, and I pick nursing and then mental health nursing in particular. Uh, I ends up working with this woman in, as a nurse later on down the line, and she she wasn't all that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's that that's kind of that, mate. It was yeah. Oh mate, yeah. No oh, but she had enough of it to kind of uh, inspire the start of the journey. Anyway, yeah. yeah. How like um, how far were you along that path when you started to get? I suppose your own ideas about it, because the the traditional um, like medical common path is pretty set, isn't yeah. it? There's not a lot of you know how how far were you into it when you start looking around and going, hang on a minute, like does this work? Could we change it? What's yeah. better? Like how did that sort of progress well, for you? <clears throat> so there was a theme across my time working in, in the NHS in particular. I, w- I was there for a long time. I was there for over ten years. You know, I, I owe the NHS a lot. Um, it bred me and it gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, I went up the ladder pretty quick and, I, like I say, you know, travelled the country, I owe it a lot. But there was a theme, I was always getting stood on the naughty step. So th- the reason being is is sometimes you learn, and we hear it to this day, you know, that all the problems in the NHS are because of a lack of funding. Well, that's not true, you know. Um, all of the problems in the NHS are because of the Tories. Well, that's not true either. I'm, don't get me wrong, a lot of them are. Um, but but it's not. I mean, over ten years ago, still, we were spending money on things, or we were spending resource, we were placing resource in places where actually it, it, the staff on the shop floor were saying, "Well, it's better place there, it's better place there." And a lot of the time, leadership or um, you know, there wasn't there wasn't the mechanisms and the support frameworks in place to be able to listen to the people who actually were doing the job day in day out. Um, much less the patients, believe it or not. Uh, we're getting better at that, but but yeah. So throughout my career, I'd always I'd, I'd always thought about things in a little bit of a different way, uh, even academically as well. So a lot of my early work, I've still got it from when I when I was doing my nursing degree and then the stuff I've done thereafter. It was all very um, kind of critical in an academic sense. It was always looking for alternative ways of doing things, whether that was, you know, I, I come out of of of, of my undergrad in, in in mental health nursing, which was. There was loads of critical thought within that, and then there was there was postgrad stuff in philosophy, and always thinking about mental health as a concept, and thinking about why we're doing it the way we're doing it, and um, very critical of, of 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 psychiatry at the time and psychi- and mainstream services, and that 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 was always something that stuck with me. I taught on it a little bit in universities and things, and it, it stuck with me. But of course, I was I was stuck in the mindset in in, in the in the kind of the the NHS mainstream mindset of well. There's all the resource, there's all the money. It's really hard to do. I was kind of shackled by a pension and security and all that type of stuff. So you didn't ever really think that you could step out of that because it's so dominant, mm. you know. Um, and I thought about it for about two years before I actually did it. And I eventually did it. 
informally in 2018 following the death of my mum. I was still quite unwell at that point. Um, but I'm sure we'll get on to that. And 2019 was formally when we when we incorporated First Person Project. Right, yeah. yeah. It's really interesting you mentioned that, actually, because I kind of, like, I used to work for the NHS. Um, I used to work at the uh, Cancer Centre up in Bevington. And I always say, from my time there, I was there for seven years, and I always say that if, like, some magic fairy came about and suddenly gifted the NHS three and a half billion quid, I'm not confident it would be spent on the right places. No. It's so true what you said that yeah. it's not a mu- it's it's very easy to vent and say it's all about the money, it's all about the money. But you know, I can I know offices full of very expensive equipment that no one was using mm-hmm. and wards with more managers than nurses on wards mm-hmm. on big pay bands and it's just not uh it's 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 it needs right. you can't say the word reform, people start getting on your case and like you know, but it there's a there's more to it than money. That's a, a wonderful point. hundred percent I think as well like like so, uh, we kind of touched on it, um, kind of off air before, but, you know, when I first started talking about what First Person Project was and what it's become, I was always I was struggling to articulate it, but I had, this, I had this kind of professional knowledge and experience, and I still had a lot of kind of, um, you know, I suppose personal gripes because of, cause of trauma at the, hands of, at the hands of the NHS when I was an employee towards the end. Um, like... I still to this day talk about this idea of of an NHS even fully formed, even if it's ten out of ten, it's still not it's still not not gonna be able to to deal with the challenges of the twenty first century. It's just not going to be able to. It was designed in the late forties for for the for the late forties. It's gone through a couple of reforms. One in the eighties was was because of money and business and putting management in and all this type of stuff. It isn't. It isn't fit for purpose. At even even ten out of ten, it's not. And that's not a criticism of the NHS. What that is actually, rather than seen as a criticism of the NHS, let's see it as a promotion of the strengths of community and citizens in the communities. You know, why are and I include myself in this at one point. Why are we sat in offices guessing what the problems are in Liverpool eight and not never knocking on a door in Liverpool eight? Why don't we suspend all of our preconceptions and go and start knocking on the door? Wait to be invited into these communities by people, build some trust up, and they'll tell us what the problems are. Even better, why don't we invest in in them and maybe let them make some decision making around the spending in that area? Um, and then and then that way we know exactly that the money's being spent on the areas identified by the people who are being that's being affected. But we we still to this day don't do that. We don't yeah. do that. Yeah. You know? I suppose when something's like so big. It doesn't matter what you do. If it's so big, there's going to be an element of it that is like run like a machine. Of course. You know, yeah. if, if this, if what you did just got bigger and bigger and bigger and just got, became this massive, yeah. like, you know, then you, you'd lose touch with the community. That's how it happens, yeah. right? You kind of, yeah. uh, it's just um, some things, I suppose, are um, unavoidable. Well, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm very, very pleased to say that, that you know, Mersey Care, for example, I've started doing kind of micro-commissioning opportunities and, um, where, whereby basically they'll say, you know, we know from our intelligence, if you like, our data, that, that these are some of the issues, and they invite smaller, much smaller organisations to, to maybe put forward a potential solution. And then they will, they will pay them, you know, they will contract them to, to do that work. You know, fortunately, we've, we're very, very fortunate and lucky to, to have just been successful in, in the suicide prevention project, which is yet to start. But so... I suppose the big juggernauts out there are going, okay, well, maybe some of the mouthpieces like me, maybe I've got a, um, 
I've, I've got a point with this stuff and, and we're going to invest in, in, in communities a bit more rather than just guessing, you know, and keep spending and spending and spending. So, and there's, there's, there's national organisations as well, things like New Local, there's a local, sorry, there's something called Citizens UK where, you know, they've got charters as they call them, chapters, sorry, uh, right across the country and Liverpool have just started their own New Local, uh, their, their own Citizens UK chapter, which is basically about, you know, holding, holding those in the public sector and those who hold the public purse to account over certain, certain things. So we're moving in the right way and what a city to do it in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, definitely. How, so if you're having these, you're like working in HS and you're kind of seeing things that you think could be improved or done differently or, or looked at differently, how does your own mental health come into this maze? How does that start to, I suppose, start to impact you? But then I'm going to make an assumption here that, that your own experience has also played a big part in the work that you do yeah. here, right? Yeah, 100%. So I think, as I, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, there's, there's, I suppose, certain predispositions and vulnerabilities that that I collected, really, over the years through different things, upbringing, experiences, and the things that I mentioned earlier on. And what they're waiting for, essentially, is is that straw that break the camel to, to break the camel's back, or that kind of domino to topple them all. And we, we, you know, we teach this in services. You know, stress vulnerability models been around since the seventies. We talk about that in, in relation to uh, psychosis, for example. So, I, I, I was vulnerable anyway, as most people I think are in society. Looking in services, um, the job satisfaction part, I could never settle somewhere. Although I do feel we had some good success as part of you know as part of a team, I could never really settle, and I was always kind of getting cold feet with stuff. Or I was always like thinking, mm, you know, we've done it okay. This I would never celebrate any success. It was always we need to we need to improve. We need to improve. We need to improve. Um, and in some sorts, that's really celebrated. In the northeast, in particular, I felt like I had a really good part of my career there. But in other parts of the country, Manchester, for example, I didn't. Um, it wasn't celebrated. It was I was kind of going out to dry a little bit with with some of that thinking, and what that does for your self esteem is it, it batters you down a bit, you know, and you, you you start to feel well. What's the point in kind of putting this amount of work in? Because you're essentially uh, you are you might get a clap on a Thursday night, but essentially you're a slave to the system, you know. Um, pay's not great, conditions aren't great, and all of the things that we know. And when you're in it, you're like, wow, okay, is this is this for the next thirty years what, what I've got? And basically, the the, the 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 catalyst for all of this was was the death of my mum. So, my mum was like I mentioned before, just a a bit of a, a bit of a lovable rogue. Really, everyone knew her. Some some really liked her, some didn't. You know, uh, she was a bit of an untamed menace. Really, a bit of a thorn in the side uh, to some people. But it's because she's from the place where I grew up. She was she was amazing. Um, knew how to make a quid. You know, to bring the kids up and stuff like hats off to people like that. So I always had this kind of respect for people like that, and we would see a lot of them in the services that we looked after, working in parts of like you know, Kirby or Ainsley or Edge Lane or whatever. You see the type, same types of people. And basically, when my mum died, she she got sepsis. She was on life support for eight days, and she she died. Um, I wasn't able to to go and see her in the week leading up to her going to hospital getting blue lights at the hospital because I was essentially promised things in the workplace that weren't delivered on. I was, they told me I could leave early because I basically earned the time. I 
bit of canoe at the time. And then for stupid reasons, kept me back. It was a power play. You know, I know that. I, I knew that then. I was angry about it then. I'm less angry about it now, but it's still a fact. Um, and then just the way I was treated when I was off sick and stuff like that, it was just... Bleh. So I'd made a decision that I wasn't going to go back into that world. And once I got better, because I was convinced I was going to get better, um, I developed psychosis and stuff. I might go into that in a minute, maybe. But um, after about a year, it was like, well, we're going to have a service which is people-powered, which is free at the point of delivery, which doesn't have waiting lists, which is uh, it's all very idealistic, as you can imagine, which is, you know, people can come in and if they just want to talk to somebody like them, they can. And, it, and it's not like a an add-on it's a core part of the service or if they need something a little bit more experienced someone a little bit more experienced with a certain set of skills they can have that as well no waiting list no hoops to jump through no messing around very idealistic of course we made it happen yeah 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 that's um crazy yeah that's it isn't it well i think like sometimes being idealistic it puts people <laughs> off right and <laughs> people people would say like oh i can't do that we're asking too much but you know, then then you got to look at all the people that there's a lot of people that do things that are too idealistic, and guess what they do them right. And you got to look at those people rather than yeah. say, well, if they can do it, yeah. I can do it. And uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. It, it, ease is a greater threat to progress than hardship. You know, I stole that off Denzel Washington. That was a, <laughs> a, it was a quote I stole off him, but it but it just honestly it just sums up everything. You know, like. It, if it's easy, it's not it's even worth it. You're even trying hard enough if you don't fail. Things like that. I know it's cliche, but but it actually it sticks in my head, you know. Um and, and when I say we did it, I'm 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 going hard on the weak part because it's been it it, it would have been impossible without the likes of you know, Caroline, Michael, um we've got an army of volunteers that have kind of made it happen, but not just made it happen for first person project, made it happen for for themselves and where they're from. So when first person project don't exist, if we ever don't exist, they can still go, wow, look what we did for where we're from. You know what I mean? All thanks to them. Yeah. You know, we're very second. We're seconds when it comes to this stuff. Oh, mate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful thing, hey? Being yeah. able to, to look at it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of like, I'm really interested in, um, like, I don't want to, I never with this podcast want to like dwell in the in the sadness we don't dwell in the darkness that's not i don't think that serves people to do that no, but i'm really interested in this idea of yourself with this uh, credible amount of experience in in nursing and mental health nursing and becoming ill you know essentially becoming you know having a lot of the same experiences the people that you would have spent many years mm. looking after yeah a lot of people i spoke to and myself i suppose included i had no idea i was mentally unwell until I was, until afterwards yeah. <laughs> did you as you were starting to get more poorly more sick did you know what was going on with you how does that how does that work well it was it, 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 it's so the way i talk about it, i i was diagnosed with with um psychotic depression as they call it i'm not keen on labels anyway never have been um but, but that was the label they gave me and the way i described my experience with, with, with psychosis was most of it wasn't distressing most of it wasn't. I, don't get me wrong, I was vulnerable at every turn, but but I, w- I wasn't completely distressed by it because because most of it involved my mum. So my mum was obviously, she died at that point. Um, 
I was, you know, I, w- I was having cups of tea at three o'clock in the morning with her. I was doing dance routines to the drifters and the stylistics, which was things that we used to do. I was cracking jokes to someone. Obviously, she wasn't there. She was laughing. <laughs> it's just, you know, and, I, and I do, and, and when I, I do training and, and consultancy work now as a way of bringing money into first-person projecting, I, when I'm always talking about that stuff, because I'm quite open about it, I... I do chuckle at that point, but I always have to give a disclaimer and say, look, I'm not, I'm not laughing at psychosis. I'm, I'm just, ch- mate, it was as, well, you know, you know, it, it was as real as this conversation is. And, and it was still funny, you know, you know, jokes and things like that. And it's still memories, it's real memories. However, where it become distressing was the realisation that a lot of this stuff wasn't real. So I... And there's a bit of embarrassment, you know. So I was going to places where I was convinced my mum would be, uh, like shops and things and Brecht Road and places where she'd be. And I'd see people who I'd who I'd know, and I'd be asking, "Have you seen my mum and stuff?" And of course, they knew that she 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 died. And I I get sad thinking about the distress in their eyes, you know, worrying for me uh, because they could quite they could see I was quite obviously unwell. Um, and then I mean. You know that'd last for for a day or two, and I would I would cling on to the fact that I, I wouldn't be any less aware that it wasn't real, but I would I would I was still able Jordan this time to, you know, go along to occupational health meetings and this type of stuff and put a mask on. I actually wrote a letter, and and gave the diagnosis back. So I used professional. I talk about this when I train as well. I wrote a a, a letter worded professionally, signed off obviously with all the the silly kind of post nominal letters and all the stuff that the uh, the people like, you know, <laughs> basically they think it gives you credibility. And I basically said, you know, um, I'm not, I, I don't have psychotic depression. What I said was I'm, I'm grieving for the for the loss of my mum and everything else. Um, I can remember being really, really disappointed and kind of sad, really, really, really sad when somebody said, so you're having a cup of tea with your mum and said, yeah, what time? So at three o'clock in the morning, that's normal. It wasn't normal, but to me it wasn't. He said, well, when have you ever known your mum not to drink a cup of tea? And I, the answer's never. She was a tea tank. I mean, I've got literally, I've got literally a tea. A tea <laughs> yeah. She was a tea tank, you know. Um, she never known anyone to drink tea like her. And they'd be like, well, why is the cup still full? And I can remember just going, wow, you know. And it, it, I remember getting really, really sad because, of course, I knew that something, something wasn't right. And in the midst of all this, there was suicide attempts as well. So... Um, I was playing Russian roulette. With, like I said, I mean, I'm sorry if anyone listening, disclaimer kind of trigger warning type of thing. But, you know, I was, I, I didn't want to die necessarily, but I just, I wanted to be with her. And it was, I was taking staggered overdoses of, of codeine and of paracetamol and different medications over the course of a number of days, weeks. And it was getting worse and worse, you know, with every, with every attempt. Um, there was never a time when I would just take you know, 100 pills. It was always, oh, you're not supposed to take 10, 12, 14, but I will. Tomorrow I'll take 20. And it will. And I stockpiled them and I was I was adding with ibuprofen and things, ibuprofen and things like that. Um, that was a bit, I, I look back at me, I don't really recognise myself mm. when I was thinking that. This is only 2018, you know. Um, and the thought, that kind of suicidal idea, I still get these these ideas all the time. I, I think once you've been, once you've opened your mind up to the fact that you are infallible to these thoughts, 
and once you're vulnerable to them, I think they kind of stay there for me, at least that that's the case. Now, am I going to do something? No, I've got any intention to do nothing, not at all. But this kind of, oh, you know what you can do when it gets a bit heavy? It just comes in. Um, like a get out of jail. That's exactly what it is, yeah. yeah. Um, but flipping that in a positive, which is essentially, that's our philosophy really, yeah. We, you know, when somebody comes through our doors and they say, you don't know how it feels, it's like, well, okay, I don't know exactly how it feels because I'm not you, but I do have more more knowledge than, than you might realise. And that story, that ability, you know, and that's not just with me, Michael, Caroline, Michaela, the, the guys who work with us every day um, as part of our team, they all have a similar story. And that becomes as power that becomes more powerful than any any tablet, any therapy you can you can administer. Because immediately people are like, Wow, okay, well, you know, you've got through it, you're telling me I can get through it. And then we can start doing things like safety planning, we can start doing things like, you know, planning a person's week and giving them some routine and giving them a place to go and holding a hand or exploring whatever it is that they need to do. Um in an accessible way, in a way where you haven't gonna wait. To, to access it night or day you know you can come and phone us dm us anytime you know um it's i'm not sure how sustainable it is mate but but we're here anyway <laughs> yeah but now it's sustaining it's here mate right? it's here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think that a lot of the thing with like suicidal thoughts as well is i became very very comfortable with those thoughts they the, i remember the first time something like that popped into me i'd been shocked by it it didn't take me long it's like watching horror movies you watch enough of them you stop jumping right? yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. it's the same you become very very comfortable with it but just because i was comfortable with it i was very aware that other people weren't yeah. and one of the, i think the biggest barriers to people saying i've been having these thoughts is that is the shame and the judgment yeah. and saying it and how i didn't want to say that to my wife and have her look scared yeah so I didn't say anything. Yeah. But if you can say it to someone who goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I get that. It's yeah. not even that weird here. <laughs> you know, yeah. welcome aboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's so fucking powerful, yeah. isn't it? No, like, it is. Really, uh, it, it, really important. It, it, it is, it is. We, it's, you know, I think it's, it's when we do training and, and, and things like that with people, you know, we're always, we're always kind of saying, don't, if somebody says it, you take it, you take it serious, but, you you know what you've just said you've hit the nail on the head it's like just watch your response to it you know the fact is somebody could have been could have been building that up for, for six months to tell somebody i remember again speaking off air but one of the first podcasts i did i won't i won't say but i i actually the first time i i told anybody you know publicly about about my my suicide suicide thoughts suicidal attempts was live on the podcast <laughs> and it was just the right time to do it and I just I just I, I, but it, it, ta- it taken me about a year or something like that to tell anybody that and I can remember getting like this this outpouring of texts and all this type of stuff from people who blessed them you know they just wanted to make sure everything was okay and I was like I was absolutely fine because it was like a year on from the event mm. um, um, yeah it's 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 if you if, if your response as the, as the person in that helping capacity doesn't you know if you can't if you can't mind if you can't watch that then what you might do is is is, is prevent that person from sharing again because like you say you've just scared them off or whatever um take it serious of course but know that just because somebody's having a suicidal thought it doesn't mean that they're immediately going to go and do it um ultimately that it comes down to you know how much you know that person how much you're 
how much you're asked about learning about them um, and how much time you're willing to put into that relationship, that trust building part, um, you know, and, and the effort that it takes to get to the point where somebody might tell you, but they're not just tell you, might actually believe when you say, look, we can get through this, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, take me hand, follow me, you know, um, you know, that's that's the part that you have to invest in, you know, or you can just phone nine nine nine. I mean, that's what that's 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 like the opposite end of the spectrum, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. But um, we always tell people, you know, the first the first one, you know, the first type of way of helping. Nice, yeah. How did you start to get better? You mentioned before when you started this place, you still wasn't like particularly no, well, oh right? God. How do you feel that gap? How do you get from that that place of suicide to thinking I'm going to do something about this in my yeah. local community so basically um it's it, there's a bit of a misconception really i think about about, about me but, but online at times and maybe from some podcasts and stuff that i'm like anti-psychiatry i'm anti i'm, I'm certainly not i'm part of the, that world still i'm a registered nurse you know registered mental health nurse um but i do see the limits to it and i i always then say well i was helped by i took you know i went to the, the gp like anybody else and i I got stuff to help me sleep. I got stuff to help me with the initial agitation, like diazepam and things like that. But I also then took antidepressant medication for, for about 18 months. I took sertraline. And I also went along to a, um, a counsellor. I was lucky that I was able to access counselling pretty quick. Now, it wasn't the counselling itself that was that was the kind of the help. It was the person delivering the counselling. It was a guy called James. Um, I've never seen him since. I, I probably should reach out to him to be honest because I don't think this guy realises that how, how instrumental he was in, in, in kind of helping me we we met for 12 sessions we didn't in my mind it was obviously believing counselling and stuff we didn't speak about me mum not once in my to, even still now I think back I can't think one, one time when I brought it up but at the end of the 12 sessions he's produced this poem which he'd written based upon stuff I'd told him about me mum wow so I had spoken about it and he'd kind of had this skill to mask everything around conversations around football or politics or socialism or the union or stuff that he knew I'd talk about. And that kind of sparked something off in me. I thought, how is this guy, the way he, the way he was dressed, the way he spoke, he, he you know, he, he just, everything was just completely normalised. And I remember thinking, he's making a career out of doing this on a one-on-one, one -on -one, you know, is going to work in a shirt and tie really me? And the answer was no. I mean, obviously, people can't see, but I'm sat here in a bag short and t shirt set, and that's kind of all walking around. Um, and I thought there's something in it. So, obviously, I was getting that help over here, you know, but then I thought, well, what is it that's preventing people from getting access to mental health services? And I looked, and it's all the things that that, that your listeners might, 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 might know as well, like waiting lists and certain blockages and bureaucracy and all that type of stuff, a bit of fear and all that type of thing. So I thought, well, how can we rip those barriers down? And the, the way I come up with really was go door to door like an old salesman, you know, put a, I put a, a backpack on and in the backpack was a DBS certificate. <laughs> Honestly, um, I nursed him with me, nursed him with the uh, what they call statement of NC, which basically proves that I'm a nurse. Um, and like you know, different kind of self help tools and things that might help me. And I went door to door, and it was pre pandemic, and it was like, you know, I am Matty, um, I introduced myself, and I just explained, Are you waiting to access mental health services? Do you think that you need to talk to somebody about that? 
most of the time, as you can imagine, people slam the door in my face because they're a bit scared. Like I said, I was probably still still unwell at that point too. Um, but I was trying, and I was trying. And then when the pandemic came round, it was actually really a really, really positive thing for us in the sense that people wanted to talk. And they thought that that like three metre worth of space that we were giving them, that they were completely safe from the stranger that had knocked on the door. I mean, they were safe from me, but, you know, three metres wasn't the reason for that. It was because <laughs> I'm not a nice guy. Um, and what we did, well, what I did at that point was, you know, coaching. Um, I was doing some therapy, but we weren't really calling it therapy. I was just using some tools and techniques. I might be doing some medication advice, um, holding hands to go along to appointments, doing some professional advocacy, some coaching, some mentorship, phoning the GP on their behalf, going to GP appointments with them. And I was doing that on my days off and we weren't charging any money for it or any of that. And in doing that, it was just that, well, let's see if we can make something work. It wasn't a business at that point. Uh, that, that came a bit later on uh, when I decided to go and get educated around business. So when I'd done a master's degree in business and I used first person project as like the case study. And then systematically, we, we, we built it up. We learned about... Um, looking at, you know, analysing the, 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 the competitive landscape and all that type of using business principles, trying to look at it and see where we fit in. And we actually realised that we fit in. There was, there was absolutely a place for us. And politically and sociologically in Liverpool, it was like right now, right here, right now, you know. Yeah. And, and now what we're seeing a couple of years on with the rest of the changes that's going on is actually we couldn't be in any better place than Liverpool for this to happen, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. So was that almost in like in real it, real time? Like it feels like you kind of like learned something at uni yeah. and then just like implemented it. And was it? Yeah. Yeah. So so wow. literally. So first person. So basically, it was it was an idea. I had. It was not certainly when a business. I, I I was. What I'd done. I didn't return to NHS management ever. I never went back after 2018. But what it did do was went and spent some time in the private sector. I worked over the water quite a lot as well. Um, about not long, you know, a bit less than a year. But in that time, I, I I was like, well, this is not my long-term thing. If I can make first-person project, pay the bills, as well as obviously do all the things that I hope it can do, then that's that's what I'm going to do. Now I'm going to dedicate everything to that. Um, but working in the private sector, I learned that actually, you know, if you apply, forget, forget the kind of ethical part and everything else. If you can apply your business principles to an idea and you can help, you know, thousands of people by doing that. There, there is a way of doing that, and there's a way of doing it in, in, in like you say, in, in, in an ethical way. And this company I work for, pretty good at that. Um, it didn't work out for different reasons, but I stepped away from that and kind of stepped into uni at the same time. And in order to keep basically the, the lecky on in the house, I um, I went and done local work. So I reduced all my hours down to three to do them over three days went back into the NHS but as a practitioner and was able to kind of use my skills in a way which kept me away from all the politics of management and all that but basically done the local stuff for three days a week I was doing some work in the unis and things like that to, to, to pay the bills and then the other three or four days a week that I had remaining I was going door to door and then when in uni we would do a you know for example, we would do like a, a module on strategic risk risk management or something like that. I would use first person project as the the assessment, the case study, and I would use all the literature that we would read and everything else. And I would pick first person project apart systematically using what we'd learned, and then I would build it up 
using kind of the support of my peers and the the academics and everything else and try it out because we had nothing to lose because we didn't have any in anyway. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And it, yeah, it went from next, you know, built and built and built. And by the time graduation came around, as I mentioned before, we were at the stage where we understood that if we were gonna if we were gonna stay in this world, we wanted to be self sustaining. We didn't want to be on a fund and merry go round. We wanted to be, you know, at least at least fifty percent generating our own revenue, and we can maybe get grants to help us with the other fifty percent. Since then, it's actually been more like ninety percent revenue to ten percent grants. That might change. We're not naive, you know, recession and all that type of stuff. But that's what we wanted to do, and we we broke down the skills that we had as as you know when I looked at my skills and the other people that were involved, and we said, well. Is there a place where people might want to buy these rather than give us money? And that's where the training, the consultancy and the different problem solving across communities and community building stuff came in because, of course, there is a, to use a silly business term, there's a market for that. So you bring money in one end of the business and you invest it the other end. That means that the people who you want to work with, the community people, get the service for, for fully funded. Yeah. That means that you can dance to your own tune and means you can keep... Um, keep the you know the, the waiting list down and the bureaucracy down and the you know you've got this ability to be quick and agile and everything else and look we're blessed it's working so far you know um hopefully it'll continue in the future but yeah yeah fingers crossed. oh mate so you get to the you get to the point where you need a premises and then this was a pharmacy right you mentioned at the start yeah there's, i, I yeah, wanted yeah. to talk about that there's, yeah. a, there's a, a lot of irony in the <laughs> fact that we're sitting in a in a pharmacy yeah. but yeah ripped all that out turned it into like this amazing space that we're sat in now um how did you then decide because i'm imagining you're knocking on doors and you're doing things very yeah. individually how do you bring that all under one roof? how do you decide what to do here so i mean there's there's, there's so what what we've done uh, kind of just a little bit prior to, to this to getting this venue here was we'd you know we'd been lucky to, to to kind of win the odd grant here and there and to get a little bit of corporate business so we had we had a little bit of money in the bank i mean i'm talking kind of you know less than 10k but we had a little bit and with that money we was able to invest however we wanted one of the ways in which we we, we invested initially was we got a desk and a space down in the baltic uh, the baltic triangle and that gave us access to like a training space so We'd put on um, public courses, which people could access, you know, for free, no waiting lists, everything else. It was all very much in the in the philosophy of first person project. So we had built up quite a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of traction. We we we'd, we'd seen a lot of outcomes that we were able to kind of capture and measure and feedback and testimonials and things. So we had a lot of. We've been able to show that for very little investment, we were able to get good results using our way. Um, but like you mentioned, it was very much like inviting people to this space that we didn't really have any say over. It was just like when we could rent it out and everything else. And then we, a couple of opportunities came up to do, we couldn't believe they came up at the time because we we were talking about, you know, we're a community building organisation. We do community building activities in order to improve mental health. And it was all very, you know, we were, we were still a bit ideological at the time. And this opportunity came up from, um, it was Taurus Foundation, and it was like hand in glove. We couldn't believe that there was a, 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 a kind of a contract out there to tender for. That was like literally like match made in heaven. We went for it, we got it. 
um, we got a number of other ones, and then obviously we got this this premises here. But what we didn't want to do was then turn ourselves into a service where you have to come to us all the time. So even though we have a timetable of activities um, where people are invited in, the times that we're not in here, we're, we're still going door to door. Right. Yeah, so we're still out. We're still doing our thing. So, um, you know, I think I mentioned before, since April 2022, you know, over 8,000 people have had contact with our service, and that's just the community. We've got corporate kind of numbers as well that we could that we could we could refer to as well but over eight thousand people and, and and the reason for that or the way we've done that because people ask that all the time it's like obviously it, it is quite a high number it's because of the the we're always thinking about how what are these blockages so we're going back to where we started you know what are these blockages what are these what are these barriers to access and service and one of our kind of catchphrases has become bollocks to barriers you know if there's a barrier there our job is to tear it down and if we've got like people always kind of laugh because they see me flying around on one of them scooters because <laughs> i'm always you know if we get a referral let me get a, get a referral in today saying you know we've got you know joe blogs and he can't get down he's in old swan can you go and see him well yeah cool we just go and we go and see him and you know we've had we've had loads of thing, things like that where it's like um, can you can you go and see this person or my nephew he's just started a new job and he's met somebody and she's got a daughter who's a bit troubled and she lives in Everton and it's like you know we were in the car going to see people so sometimes we do that as well mm. but we also have the the kind of bricks and mortar thing now where if people don't fancy doing it that way they can come and see us in a more traditional way again bollocks the barriers we're trying to smash down as many as we can to give opportunities rather than problems yeah do you have like a system? So if someone, that example, you get a phone call saying, yeah. um, well, I suppose just take a little step back from that. When you get a phone call, who's that phone call from? Are people referred here from all over the, you know, GPs or all over the place? Or how does that work? Yeah, so so we, we, we accept referrals from anyone, including the person themselves, family members, whatever. It really doesn't matter where the referral comes from. We, we'll capture it in the same way our end. We have obviously kind of um, spreadsheets and things like that to do that. Um. We might get a referral in. So, for example, in the north end of the city, you know, um, we work really closely with the link workers. We work into the GP practices. We've got links in, in the south end as well. Um, you know, if they get somebody who comes to the GP practice and needs a mental health, some mental health support, we're often, you know, top of the list. They'll, they'll refer us, they'll, they'll call us, and then they'll fill a referral form in. We have an agreement with a walking centre in town that, they can refer X amount of people through to us for one-to-one -one support each week. You know, they get they get all the student population going through them and everything else. So we do have formal processes in that way, or, or you know, typical processes. But a lot of the time, it's someone will stop you on the street, or you'll get a, you'll get a DM on, on Twitter or or Instagram or something like that. And we're not going to go. Oh, I'll tell you what. Give an example. So. I won't mention the, I won't mention the service, but it is a mainstream service. I got a guy who's local to us here, lovely guy. He's previously been known to a mainstream service. They've got all his details and things. Um, he called us a few weeks ago saying that basically the problems that he was experiencing have come back probably worse, and to the degree that he can't get out, he can't look after himself and everything else. Now we're not funded or commissioned to do any work with that guy. Um, now that doesn't stop us doing work with him. Of course it doesn't, but 
there's a limit to what we can do. It's only, we've only got three members of staff and everything else. So I had the conversation with this mainstream service and said, do you remember that guy? Oh, yeah, I remember him. Can we reopen his case? Oh, well, you've got to fill this form in and you've got to do this and everything else. I was like, but I really don't have time. I'm doing... No, no, if you can do that, then fine. Now, that didn't get done. Two weeks have passed. We had a conversation. We've had multiple conversations with the gentleman since then, but we had a conversation with him yesterday about it. And then I went back to this mainstream service and they were like, did you fill the email? And I was like, two weeks have passed. Like, you know about this guy? Just click like, yes on, on your thing and just go <laughs> yeah. and see him. It's like, so we want to, we, we never want to be in a situation mm-hmm. where, you know, we're saying to somebody, oh, I know you've DM'd us, but I'll tell you what, we'll phone you and we'll go through a form. It's like, just bring them in. Do the work with them. All the demographical stuff, I was going to swear them, but all that can, can be done as you go. I mean, what do you need to know? Like, why do you need to know that stuff? I don't, you know, bollocks to barriers. Yeah. <laughs> it's what we try and do, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, we get, we get referrals from everywhere, mate, you know. Oh, mate, yeah. So, if you go and knock on someone's door, they've been referred to you, you go and knock on the door. And do you have a, like a, this is probably quite a very big, vague question, but like a, a, a loose system to try and start to build that connection with people, right? Because you're not knocking yeah. on the door and giving them like CBT or something, no. for example, right? No. That's not how it works. We have a loose, we, have, we do have a loose assessment. We, we don't, so basically everyone that comes through the service, whether they're a volunteer or a paid member of staff or whatever, was small, so... People would look at a small organisation and, and maybe see that as like a, a negative. We, we see it as a positive because it means we can move quick. And it means that I've still got connection with everything that happens. So when we get a new cohort of, you know, volunteers who we'll offer training to or staff who, or whatever, it's me that's delivering it, you know. So what that means is, is from a philosophy point of view and from a kind of this is the way it's got to be done from the horse's mouth, we're still able to do that because of our small size. So, the, all of our all of our team have got qualifications in things like mental health first aid, um, you know, accredited qualifications, the, the qualified mentors, some of the you know the qualified coaches, so they can have conversations around, you know, in, in things which don't require us to have the answer, where we can kind of enable and coach the person. To, to maybe have their answers themselves and encourage them to come up with the answers themselves. So we've all got them kind of tools. Now, we will educate and, and, and train up all of the volunteers to do that as well. So you don't have to be a professional to do this stuff. It's just kind of our approach. Now, essentially, it starts with three questions. The first question is, you know, what is it I've got? So we'll encourage the person to think about, you know, what, what gifts, what skills, what assets do I have as an individual that, that can help me to you know that that kind of makes me me what are my passions what are what are the things i'm interested in what are the things i'm good at what are the, what are my ambitions for the future and we'll we'll ask them that question first and we'll build up the set of resources the second question we'll ask them then is okay well with that in mind think about your community and think about in relation to you think about all the things your community has and everything else and then consider is there anywhere within that that you need to get a bit of help for some of the things that are going on you know what things can you do with the resources that we've identified that can maybe address some of these problems you've got. And then we kind of move on to the third question, which is, okay, we've done questions one and two. This third question, where do you need all of the help from outside? Where can't you do anything about it? You know, like uh, one, for example, cost of living crisis is obviously, it's on everyone's lips at the minute, rightly so. Um, We see people all the time coming through and they've had all of the budget and skills and all of the stuff that, that, 
maybe other community centres and stuff are offering. And, you know, I'm not knocking that type of way of helping somebody, but sometimes it's not a budget and things. Sometimes it's there's literally not enough money because they've got three miles to feed, they're on benefits, and cost of living is ridiculous, right? So they literally can't do anything about that. They've done everything for themselves. That would that would be the third question. What do we need to do? Do you need somebody to phone up your supplier for you, you know, to argue the toss with them and anything else? Sometimes it's the person needs all the help. Now, if you think about it in a mainstream sense and you, you just flip it again, most of the time, mainstream services are starting at that third question. Mm. It's always, okay, well, we're the expert. How can we do all of the help for you? And how can you, you know, read between it, how can you continue to be dependent on us? Yeah. We don't start at that question. We, we've got two questions before we get to that. So we'll have a conversation with the person based around those questions. And then we'll see what's going on for them. And then we will tailor our service to suit. Often that is providing all the resources that we have, whatever they need. So with the writing club, it could be pens and paper. It could be a space. It could be the referrals coming in to, you know, to, to populate the group. With the meditation and breath work, it could be the space to do it, the people coming in, the yoga mats, the salt lamp, <laughs> stuff like the incense. We'll provide our resources rather than being the resource. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's so much of this stuff that people just don't know what's out there. No. Um, and I did want to touch on that a little bit because, I, I, again, we mentioned it. We should have pressed record a lot earlier, to be honest, Matty, but, <laughs> um Like something I say a lot, whenever I speak to someone local as well, is the amount of different support options that are available in like the Merseyside area, yeah. both sides of the water. I'm always kind of blown away by it. And I think part of the reason is because I that's where I lived when I was really poorly and I didn't know about any of it, right? Mm. And it was only like afterwards. I remember that time when we first briefly met down on the Crosby Beach and there's like, there loads of people there. And I had, to, I had to go away and like follow a lot of people <laughs> on social media trying to like, who are all these people? What are all these things? I had no idea. And I suppose that's the... Uh, that's the the hardest thing, isn't it? Is to I suppose it's a two part question. Is not the first bit. It's not even a question. But I suppose yeah, I wanted to just touch on that review. What are your thoughts really on mm. on Merseyside and how there seems to be something different going on here? I speak to a lot of people all over the country. There seems to be so much different options all in one place. People are like working together, which yeah. I think is really important. Like you guys all know about each other yeah. and like that's huge as well. But there's something going on around here. It feels like. Yeah, I think I think Liverpool and the city region, I include, I include, you know, over the water and stuff as well. I think there's just something about kind of championing the rebel, you know, like this rebel ideas aren't like frowned upon. They're celebrated. And even if they're not celebrated, the person who tends to have the ideas got enough about them to argue with whoever it is that might be. And sometimes just because of this, like, well, I'm going to do it anyway, that type of approach. Again, it's the, it's this rebel kind of idea. Um, I, like I said, I hope that doesn't sound too cliche about, about the city region because I know a lot of people say Liverpool's different and stuff. I'm not, I'm not no professional scouser. I'm not trying to make us out to be anything different, but because uh, it's got its problems as well, you know. But I think, I think there is a little bit of that. I think there is a sense of um, we can maybe help each other. I think at times, again, not always the case, but sometimes, I think we're getting better at this idea of collaboration beats competition. Um, that is that is definitely a work in progress, but but we're moving forward. I think um, another kind of hat that I wear. Obviously, I mentioned earlier on, I'm I'm, I'm doing I'm doing a doctorate, but my doctoral research, um, it, it's looking at because one concern that I do have about it all is 
there seems to be an over-dependency on this um, this this grant funding merry-go-round. You know, it's like we have amazing services, as you rightly point out, but sometimes they don't last or they don't spread far enough because the the stuff that's funding it is essentially it's it's time limited or it's it's um, it's not a bottomless pit of resource. It's really easy to set up as a non-profit. The third sector, it's really easy to get into. I suppose as a, as a, as a, a social enterprise or a community interest company, it's really easy. A little bit harder for charities. But what I'm trying to say is, is it's such an easy area to get into that a lot of the time people who get into it have got the biggest hearts in the world, but maybe don't fully understand how to sustain an organisation. They can spend money, but they can't necessarily manage money. And uh, that's not everyone, of course, it's not. But it's just it's just a kind of concern, and I was thinking about this quite a lot in the lead up to applying to do the the, the research that I'm doing. Um, I believe strongly that any organisation that leads with a social mission has got the power to improve mental health outcomes in a sustainable way. That's my kind of assumption. I think it can be done. I think it is being done in pockets across the city region. My research over the next three, four years is gonna is, is looking at that specifically. Um and having interviewed a number of people so far or just, just informally and I chats with a number of people, the same feedback's coming up. It's like we have got potential to do amazing things across this region. But if we if we just keep looking to funding pots as a way of doing that, we're we're gonna be basically potential unfulfilled. Um, and in some cases, you're seeing it now organisations that have set up, done amazing things, and then abruptly they just disappear off Twitter. Mm. It's like, where the hell have they gone? You know, and it's because obviously, you know, mostly they've been sustained by by grants, and the grants are few and far between. And the next thing, you know, they can't pay the the the, the electricity or whatever it might be, and then that's it. That that's curtains. You see it all the time. Um, yeah. but, you know. There is a way forward, you know. The way, the way the way forward, I think, it comes from a place of promise again, where we we look at this as an opportunity rather than a threat, and we say, well, you know, if I'm if you're an organisation, for example, that works with I don't know, uh, using sport as a way of improving mental health, and you're a non-profit, well, what what is it you're doing specifically, and and uh, is there any potential customer base for for what you're doing? And the answer. You know, 99 times out of 100 is yes. Why can't you sell those services to somebody that's willing to pay you? You know, I'm not talking the public necessarily. I'm talking corporate organisations. I'm talking, it could be the public, but it could be like the public that can afford to pay it. It's the way of sliding scale on some stuff and everything else. We haven't had to do that fortunately with our community facing stuff because we've got a suite of corporate services that we can offer. But we're no different to, to anybody else. You know, we don't make a lot of money, but, but the money that we do make, well, we, we make it. Yeah. 90% of the way anyway at least yeah. um, so stuff stuff like that I think we can maybe look at the infrastructural things and I know it's being looked at where it's like how can we how can we ensure not just a, an amazing service how can we ensure that this amazing service continues in a sustainable way over the next however many years it's needed um, that, that's, that's, that, that's another big question going forward but it's an opportunity not a threat yeah, yeah, lovely way of uh, lovely way of looking at it. Mm. Yeah, I'm keeping an eye on the time because yeah. I know you've got a group coming in. Like one more thing, I just wanted to kind of explore a little bit with you. It's something that I've, I suppose I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about it at the moment. But it's this whole thing of like um, working class voices in a mental health conversation. Mm. And I was wondering, from like obviously being a nurse and from doing this, do you see like that massive gulf between how mental health is talked about? 
in like the media or on social media and then what actual real people are going through you know because i see a lot of like mental health events they're nearly always down south and it'll be like a black tie thing and you mm. think like it's got fuck all to do yeah. with like the guy in his house who can't pay his heating bill it's like so far away under the guise of awareness there's a place for every type of awareness of course there is like none of these things are, are, are bad as such but I sometimes feel like, yeah, the probably the sort of people that are coming through this door or whose doors you're knocking on couldn't give a fuck about an Instagram post that says no. it's okay to not be okay. Right? No. There's like a gulf between how we talk about this stuff and then what yeah. real people are experiencing. I have me I have been bees me bonnet about pretty much everything. That's that's <laughs> one of them as well. No, I think I think mental health's become a sound bite. I think it's become it's become a selling point, a marketing point. Um and I, I've kind of come away a little bit on social media from 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 moaning about it all the time. But I did used to go on about it all the time. But I'd say, you know, don't use some of these distress as a marketing tool for your organisation. Don't do that. It's disrespectful. And not only that, it's if you're putting forward this idea that somebody, so if you say somebody's got a mental illness, it's like mental. It shows to me that you don't know nothing about poor mental health. It because it doesn't work like that. You're not always always ill. You know, it comes in waves, you know, it's like sometimes you're all right, sometimes it's like it's that medical understanding, um, that biomedical understanding or, or, or model of, of of poor mental health, more mental illness. It's not it's not this switch like that that model would suggest. It's more of a continuum, you know, sometimes things are okay, sometimes things aren't. It's about understanding, it's about going with things. Whereas you, you keep pushing this message, it's okay not to be okay. It's like, well, if it was okay not to be okay, then people would feel like they could talk to people and everything else, but we're still at the point where actually people don't feel like they can. So, so is it okay not to be okay? I understand that you've only got so many characters on a hashtag that you can use. I get that, but maybe, maybe let's stop worrying about clicks on your post and let's like you just hit the nail on the head or, or black tie events down south. Let's start. Let's start going. Okay, well, how much money are we spending on these these events and what could we do with that? Could we employ somebody to actually go and over three hundred? the cost of one of these events you probably employ someone two people over the course of a year to go and do continual work to continue you know get, getting this social impact um, and having this impact at a real social community level that lasts longer than than a night or an evening you know um, and I think also there's still this this kind of um, professional ego that that and I say us as professionals because I am still one obviously that we have this idea that we're the, we're the guys and girls to speak to about this. It's like sometimes we are, most of the time we're not. You know, we need to be sensible here. It's like, I've been both sides, I still exist both sides. And you go, okay, well, I know what Joe Public is in the queue for when they're waiting for a mental health service. I've been at the end of the queue and I've been the one delivering the service. And a lot of the time, the person's disappointed by the service because expectations don't match up. So they think that they're going to get this, you know, kind of life-saving, one-of-a-kind intervention designed around them, and it's wonderful. And, of, of course, they never get that because that's not what was promised in the first place. So as the professional at the end, they could be the most kind-hearted, best professional in the world with a magic wand and the best tablet known to man. But, but a tablet's not going to go and pay your gas bill. You see, tablets are not going to go and pay the child minding fees while you have to go to work to pay the gas bill. You see what I mean? So professionals, in a traditional sense, 
and we don't in mental health at least we don't we don't have all the answers when you look at when you look at the interventions the work that professionals can do it tends to fall into two broad categories medication and of course therapy now there's a time and a place for both i've been the, i've been the um the, the recipient of both and i've got no complaints but when you look at the research and the evidence base for both it's it's not the best when you look at um diagnosis for example we're seeing like a wave of diagnosis around adhd and neurodivergency and all this type of stuff it's like when you look at, at, at there doesn't seem to be anybody saying the same things you see you tend to there's like polar polarized opinions all over the place so how can anybody realistically go i'm an expert in mental health i'm a, I'm a specialist in mental health how it's not it's not that well understood and that's cool because again to come back to what i've just said before it doesn't mean that your position your ego is threatened it means that actually, you know, this is an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to literally go hand in hand with the people that you're trying to help and learn with them rather than do to them. You see? It's the way I see it. I have bees me bonnet about everything, mate. So we're on the same page about stuff. <laughs> I'll yeah. come back. We'll yeah. do a, uh, do a bees in a bonnet special, mate, another, <laughs> another time, man. Just to kind of take us home, mate. If you, yeah, you, you weren't very well when you started this, yeah. And, you know, starting a, an organization, starting a business as such is, you know, it's hard. How, how have you been through it? How are you now, man? Like, how have you, how have you balanced it all out? It's, it, it, don't be wrong, it's hard. It is, it, it is hard. Um, there's been bouts of naivety where it's like, oh, no, I'm flying, I'm okay. And there's been times when it's like, wow, what am I doing? I'll just go and give this up. Um, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, you know. <laughs> um, I'm very, very, very lucky to have a, a really good team around me um i think the people who've got around around me now i've been i've been around the service when it was an idea they've i'm not the easiest to work with day in day out i'm like i'm like a bag of monkeys i have a thousand ideas a minute um we turn the philosophy of first person project back in on ourselves it came from us so i know i'm not always the best suited to do something um Whereas we might have somebody in the team that's far better at it than I am. Now, that might involve doing something that in a typical hierarchical, you know, taking a typical hierarchical view might mean that somebody in a more junior role is doing something more of a more kind of senior, you know, thing. But we don't really care. It's about skills, assets, gifts, as we call them. Um, And that only works if the team that you have around you goes, yeah, I see why we're doing it that way. And, you know, sometimes it might mean they, they stay late or they come in early or they have to deal with me ranting about something because I'm still not managing my stress that well and everything else. Or, you know, only only in the last couple of weeks, I've had to take two days off, one each week, because I've woke up in the morning and it's been like, yeah, I need I need someone to, to, to jump in here. I still have days like that all the time, you know, but very blessed with the team that I've got around us. I think the partners that we've got, um, they've basically taken on this idea of, you know, I've come in into their spaces and I've said, look, we've got this idea um, and I've tried to explain what it is. And they haven't got this, like, example that I that they can point to or that I can point to and go, you know, it's like, it's like I always give the example, I say, if I was inventing the next best hamburger or cheeseburger or something and I said to you, you know, it's it's kind of a bit like, you know, it's got the, the, the tomato relish off like a Big Mac or, or a quarter pounder, but it's got like, you know, the mayonnaise off like a whopper. 
you can kind of get it, yeah. If you've had it those burgers before, you get it. Well, there's no service doing what First Person Project are doing in the way that we're doing it. And early on, that required organisations, partners, you no know, valued partners now, to go, we believe that you believe this, so we're going to give you the chance. And, and often that required them part of my money, you know. Mm. And obviously we've since, over the course of the last year or two, been able to go, well, instead of trying to explain what we do, we've just showed you what we do. And now that now there's no doubt in it. Yeah. So without without that kind of, without partners like that, we wouldn't have been able to do it at all really um, and then of course most importantly you've got the people who are coming in every day and challenging us you know saying well I know you've done it this way for like the last six months and it's, it's great we've just done this actually with the writing club you know like we've had a guy who, who he's, he's mate of mine from I used to do jiu-jitsu with him and he's come in and he's he's basically said it's great the way you do it but I need a bit more structure and then we were like a bit like, oh, okay, well, structure's kind of like maybe not the arch enemy as such, but it's a bit like a game. <laughs> but say, like, okay, well, cool. And we have to roll with it. Now he, he had the, the, the curiosity to come along and to, to, to think he had the bravery and the courage to turn around and say it. And then now what we're gonna do is go, okay, well now you let's push it forward, let's pull a bit more structure in. We're gonna change the name, we're gonna change the the um change the description a little bit, invite maybe different people, market it a different way. And that's all because somebody had the courage to say it. So, yeah, so those those three three things are, are, are incredibly blessed for. Yeah, keep you ticking over, mate. Hundred yeah. percent, mate. It's a it's a wonderful thing, and it's been Thank wonderful you. to come and. Uh, yeah, I've been meaning to get this done for a little while, so it was awesome to... Uh, nice to catch you again, man. Nice yeah, to meet you properly, yeah. But, um, yeah, thank you for your time today, no, mate. Thank really you. appreciate Cheers. it. Thank you, A big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>